Hey everyone, welcome back. This is Jake Premiers, and welcome to Listening Long. Um, today we're actually going to be reading um, a book. Well, it's a series of books. It's from an author that I actually really enjoyed reading when I was younger. His name is James Patterson, and the one we're going to be reading is First to Die, and this is a, a series of Alex Cross. It's so I looked up. <laughs> so we're going to go ahead and jump into it. Prologue. Inspector Lindsay Boxer. It is an unusually warm night in July, but I'm shivering badly as I stand on the substantial gray stone terrace outside my apartment. I'm looking out over glorious San Francisco, and I have my service revolver pressed against the side of my temple. God damn you, God, I whisper. Quite a sentiment, but appropriate and just, I think. I hear sweet Martha whimpering. I turn and see she is watching me through the glass doors that lead to the terrace. She knows that something is wrong. It's okay. I call, call to her through the door. I'm okay. Go lie down, girl. Martha won't leave, though. Won't even look away. She's a good, loyal friend who's been nuzzling me goodnight every single night for the past six years. As I stare into the border collie's eyes, I think that maybe I should go inside and call the girls. Claire, Cindy, and Jill would be here almost before I hung up the phone. They would hold me, hug me, (laughs) say all the right things. You're special, Lindsay. Everybody loves you, Lindsay. Only I'm pretty sure that I'd be back out here tomorrow night or the night after. I just don't see a way out of this. I have thought of it all through a hundred times. I can be as logical as hell, but I am also highly emotional, obviously. That was my strength as an inspector with the San Francisco Police Department. It is a rare combination, and I think it is a way, it is why I am more successful than any of the males in homicide. Of course, none of them are up here getting ready to blow their brains out with their own guns. I lightly brush the barreled revolver down my cheek and then up to my temple again. Oh God, oh God, oh God. I'm reminded of soft hands of Chris and that starts me crying. Lots of images are coming way too fast for me to handle. The terrible, indelible honeymoon murderers that terrified our city, mixed with close-ups of my mom and even a few flashes of my father. My best girls, Claire, Cindy, and Jill, are crazy club. I can't even see myself the way I used to be anyway. Nobody ever, ever thought that I looked like an inspector, the only woman homicide inspector in the entire SFPD. My friends always said I was more like Helen Hunt, married to Paul Reeser and mad about you. I was married once. I was no Helen Hunt. He sure was no Paul Reeser. This is so hard. So bad, so wrong. It's so unlike me. I keep seeing David and Melanie Brandt. The first couple who were killed in the in the Mandarin suite at the Grand Hyatt. I see that horrifying hotel room where they died senselessly and needlessly. That was the beginning. Book one, David and Melanie. Chapter one. <clears throat> Beautiful long-stemmed roses filled the hotel suite. The perfect gifts, really. Everything was perfect. There might, <laughs> there might be a luckier man somewhere on the planet. David Brandt thought he was wrapped, thought as he wrapped his arms around Melanie, his new bride, somewhere in Yemen maybe, some Allah-praising farmer with a second goat, but certainly not in all of San Francisco. 
The couple looked out from the living room of the Grand Hyatt's Mandarin suite. They could see the lights of Berkeley off in the distance. Alcatraz, the graceful outline of the lit up Golden Gate Bridge. It's incredible, Melanie beamed. I wouldn't change a single thing about today. Me either, he whispered. Well, maybe I wouldn't have invited my parents, they both laughed. Only moments before, they had bid farewell to the last of the 300 guests in the hotel's ballroom. The wedding was finally over. The toasts, the dancing, the smoozing, the photographed kisses over the cake. Now it was all just the two of them. They were, they were 29 years old and had the rest of their lives ahead of them. David reached for a pair of filled champagne glasses he had set on a lacquered table. A toast, he declared, to the second luckiest man alive. The second, she said, and smiled in pretended shock. Who's the first? They looped arms and took a long, glitcherous ship, luxurious sip from the crystal glasses. This farmer with two goats, I'll tell you later. I have something for you. David suddenly remembered. He had already given her the perfect five-carat diamond on her finger, which he knew she wore only to please his folks. He went to his tuxedo jacket, which was draped over a high-backed chair, and returned with a jewelry box from Bulgaria. No, David, Melanie protested. You're my gift. Open it anyway, he said to her. This you'll like. She lifted the top. Inside a suede pouch with a set of earrings, large silver rings around a pair of whimsical moons made from diamonds. They're how I think of you, he said. Melanie held the moons against the lobes of her ears. They were perfect, and so was she. It's you who pulls my tides, David Rimmer. They kissed, and he unfastened the zipper of her dress, letting the neckline fall just below her shoulders. He kissed her neck, then the tops of her breasts. There was a knock on the door of the suite. Champagne, called a voice from outside. For a moment, David thought of this yelling, Leave it there! All evening, he had longed to peel away the dress from his wife's soft, white shoulders. Oh, go get it, Melanie whispered, dangling the ear earrings <clears throat> in front of his eyes. I'll put these on. She wiggled out of his grasp, backing toward the Mandarin's mastiff, master bedroom. A smile on her liquored, uh, liquid brown eyes. God, he loved those eyes. As he went to the door, David was thinking he wouldn't trade places with anybody in the world. Not even for the second go. <laughs> Chapter 2 Philip Campbell had imagined this moment, this exquisite scene so many times. He knew it would be the groom who opened the door. He stepped into the room. Congratulations, Campbell muttered, handing over the champagne. He stared at the man in the open tuxedo shirt with a black tie dangling around his neck. David Brent, Brent barely looked at him as he inspected the brightly ribboned box. Krug, close to Mensu, 1989. What is the worst thing anyone has ever done? Campbell murdered, mummered to himself. Am I capable of doing it? Do I have what it takes? Any card, the groom said, fumbling in his, in his pants pockets for a tip. Only this, sir. Campbell stepped forward and plunged a knife deep into the groom's chest, between the third and fourth ribs, the closest route to the heart. For the man who has everything, Campbell said. He pushed his way into the room and slammed the door shut with a swift kick. He spun David Brand around, shoved his back against the door, and powered the blade in deeper. The groom stiffened in a spasm of shock and pain. Guttural words 
escaped from his chest. Tiny, gurgling, choking breaths. His eyes bulged in disbelief. This is amazing, Campbell thought. He could actually feel the groom's strength leaking away. The man had just experienced one of the great moments of his life. And now, minutes later, he was dying. Campbell stepped back, and the groom's body crumbled to the floor. The room began to tilt like a listing boat. Then everything began to speed up and run together. He felt as if he were watching a flickering newsreel. Amazing. Nothing like he had expected. Campbell heard the wife's voice and had the presence of mind to pull the blade out of David Brandt's chest. He rushed to intercept her as she came from the bedroom still in her long lacy gown. David, she said with an expectant smile that turned to a shock at the sight of Campbell. Where's David? Who are you? Her eyes traveled over him, terror ridden, fixing on his face the knife, the knife blade, then her husband's body on the floor. Oh my god, David, she screamed. Oh, David, David. Campbell wanted to remember her like this, the frozen, wide-eyed look, the promise and hope that just moments ago had shined so brightly were now shattered. The words poured from his mouth. You want to know why? Well, so do I. What have you done? Melanie screamed. She struggled to understand. Her terrified eyes darted back and forth, sweeping the room for a way out. She made a sudden dash for the living room door. Campbell grabbed her wrist and brought the bloody knife up to her throat. Please, she whimpered, her eyes frozen. Please don't kill me. The truth is, Melanie, I'm here to save you, he said as he smiled into her quivering face. Campbell lowered the blade and sliced into her. The slender body jolted up with a sudden cry. Her eyes flickered weak, like a weak electric bulb. A deathly rattle shot through her. Why? Her begging eyes pleaded. Why? It took a full minute for him to regain his breath. The smell of Melanie Brent's blood was deep in his nostrils. He almost couldn't believe what he had done. He carried the bride's body back into the bedroom and placed her on the bed. She was beautiful, delicate features, and so young. He remembered when he had first seen her and how he had been taken with her then. She had thought the whole world was in front of her. He rubbed his hands against the smooth surface of her cheek and cupped one of her earrings. A smiling moon. What is the worst thing anyone has ever done? Philip Campbell asked himself again, heart pounding in his chest. Was this it? Had he just done it? Not yet, a voice inside answered. Not quite yet. Slowly, he lifted the bride's beautiful white wedding dress. Chapter 3 It was a little before 8.30 on a Monday morning in June. One of those chilly, gray summer mornings in San Francisco is famous for. I was starting the week off badly, flipping through old copies of the New Yorker while waiting for my GP, Dr. Roy Orenthaler, to free, me, to free up. I'd been seeing Dr. Roy, as I still sometimes called him, ever since I was a sociology major at San Francisco State University, and I obli <laughs> obligingly came in once a year for my checkup. That was the last Tuesday. To my surprise, he had called at the end of the week and asked me to stop in today before work. I had a busy day, a busy day ahead of me. Two open cases and a deposition to deliver at district court. I was hoping I could get back at my desk by nine. Miss Boxer, the receptionist finally called to me. The doctor will see you now. I followed her into the doctor's office. Generally, Orenthal greeted me with some well-intended stab at the police humor. Police humor, such as 
So if you're here, who's out on the street after them? I was now I was now 34, and for the past two years, had been lead inspector on the homicide detail out of the Hall of Justice. But today he rose stiffly and uttered a solemn, Lindsay. He motioned me to the chair across from his desk. Uh oh. Up until then, my philosophy on doctors had been simple. When one of them gave you that deep, concerned look and told you to take a seat, three things could happen. Only one of them was bad. They were asking you out, getting ready to lay on some bad news, or they just spent a fortune reupholstering the furniture. I want to show you something, Warren Thaler began. He held a slide up against the light. He pointed to splotches of tiny ghost-like spears in a current of smaller pellets. This is a blow-up of the blood smear we took from you. The larger globules are urethrocytes, red blood cells. They seem happy. I joked nervously. They are, Lindsay, the doctor said without a trace of a smile. Problem is, you don't have any. You don't have many. I fixed on his eyes, hoping they would relax and that we'd move on to something trivial-like. You better start cutting down those long hours, Lindsay. There's a condition, Lindsay, Orenthaler went on. Negley's aplastic anemia. It's rare. Basically, the body no longer manufactures red blood cells. He held up a photo. This is what a normal blood workup looks like. On this one, the dark background looked like the intersection of Market and Powell at 5 p.m., a virtual traffic jam of compressed, energetic spears. Speedy messengers all carrying oxygen to parts of someone else's body. In contrast, mine looked about as densely packed as political headquarters two hours after the candidate has conceded. This is treatable, right? I asked him. More like I was telling him. It's treatable, Lindsay Horndaller said, after a pause. But it's serious. A week ago, I had come in simply because my eyes were running and blotching. And I discovered some blood in my panties, and every day by three I was suddenly feeling like some iron-deficient gnome was inside me, siphoning off my energy. Me, of the regular double shifts and 14-hour days, six weeks accrued vacation. How serious are we talking about, I asked, my voice catching. Red blood cells are vital to the body's process of oxygenation, Orenthaler began to explain. Hemiopoiesis, the formation of blood cells in the bone marrow. Dr. Roy, this isn't a medical conference. How serious are we talking about? What is it you want to hear, Lindsay? Diagnosis or possibility? I want to hear the truth. Orenthaler nodded. He got up and came around the desk and took my hand. Then here's the truth, Lindsay. What you have is life-threatening. Life-threatening? My heart stopped. My throat was as dry as parchment. Fatal, Lindsay. Chapter 4 the cold, blunt sound of the world, of the word hit me like a hollow point shell against between the eyes. Fatal, Lindsay. I waited for Dr. Roy to tell me this was all some kind of sick joke, that he had my tests mixed up with someone else's. I want to send you to a hematologist, Lindsay. Orenthaler went on. Like a lot of diseases, there are stages. Stage one is when there's a mild depletion of cells. It can be treated with monthly transfusions. Stage 2 is when there's a systemic shortage of red blood cells. Stage 3 would require hospitalization, a bone marrow transplant, potentially the removal of your spleen. So where am I? I asked, sucking in a cramped lung full of air. <laughs> Urethro Urethrocytic count 
is barely 200 per cc of raw blood. That puts you on the cusp. The cusp? The cusp, the doctor said. Between stages 2 and 3. There comes a point in everybody's life when you realize things have suddenly changed. The carefree ride of your life slams into a stone wall. All those years have merely bounced along. Life taking you where you want to go. Abruptly end. In my job, I see this moment forced on people all the time. Welcome to mine. So what does this mean, I asked weakly. The room was spinning a little now. What it means, Lindsay, is that you're going to have to undergo a prolonged regime of intensive treatment. I shook my head. What does it mean for my job? I'd be in homicide for six years now. The past two as lead homicide inspector, with any luck, when my lieutenant was up for promotion, I'd be in the line for his job. The department needed strong women. They could go far. Until that moment, I had thought that I would go far. Right now, the doctor said, I don't think it means anything. As long as you feel strong while you're undergoing treatment, you can continue to work. In fact, it might even be good therapy. Suddenly, I felt as if the walls of the room were closing in on me and I was suffocating. I'll give you the name of the hematologist, one dollar said. He went on about the doctor's credentials, but I found myself no longer hearing him. I was thinking, who am I going to tell? Mom had died 10 years before from breast cancer. Dad had been out of the picture since I was 13. I had a sister, Kat, but she was living, she was living a nice, neat life down in New Newport Beach. And for her, just making a right turn on red brought on a moment of crisis. The doctor pushed the referral toward me. I know you, Lindsay. You'll pretend this is something you can fix by working harder. But you can't. This is deadly serious. I want you to call him today. Suddenly my beeper sounded. I fumbled for it in my bag and looked at the number. It was the office. Jacoby. I need a phone, I said. Gordon Thaler shot me a reproving look. One that read, I told you, Lindsay. Like you said, I forced a nervous smile. Therapy. He nodded to the phone on his desk and left the room. I went through the motions of dialing my partner. Funds over, boxer. Jacoby's gruff voice came online. You've got a double 180, the Grand Hyatt. My head was spinning with what the doctor had told me in a fog. I must not have responded. You hear me, boxer? Work time. You on your way? Yeah, I finally said. And wear something nice, my partner grunted, like you would to a wedding. Chapter 5 How I got from Dr. Ornthaler's office out in Noe Valley all the way to the Hyatt in Union Square, I don't remember. I kept hearing the doctor's words sounding over and over in my head. In severe cases, neglies can be fatal. All I know is that barely 12 minutes after Jacoby's call, my 10-year Bronco screeched to a halt in front of the hotel's atrium entrance. The street was ablaze with police activity. Jesus, what the hell had happened? The entire block between Shutter and Union Square had been cordoned, cordoned off by a barricade of blue and whites. In the hotel entrance, a cluster of uniforms crowded about, checking people going in and out, waving the crowd of onlookers away. I badged my way into the lobby. Two uniformed cops, who I recognized, were standing in the front. Murray, a pot-bellied cop in the last year of his hitch, and his younger partner, Vasquez. I asked Murray to bring me up to speed. What I've been told is that there's two of two VIPs murdered in the 13th floor. All the brain power's up there now. 
Who's presiding, I ask, feeling my energy is returning. Right now, I guess you are, Inspector. In that case, I want all exits to the hotel immediately shut down and get a list from the manager of all guests and staff. No one gets in or out unless they're on that list. Seconds later, I was riding up to the 13th floor. The trail of cops and official personnel led me down to the hall to a set of open door, double doors marked Mandarin Suite. I ran into Charlie Chap Clapper, the crime scene unit crew chief, lugging in his heavy cases with two techs. Clapper's being here himself meant this was big. Through the open double doors, I saw roses first. They were everywhere. Then I spotted Jacoby. Watch your heels, Inspector, he called loudly across the room. My partner was 47, but he was looking, but he looked 10 years older. His hair was white and he was beginning to bald. His face always seemed on the verge of a smirk over some tasteless wisecrack. He and I had worked together for two and a half years. I was senior inspector sergeant. Though he had seven years on me in the department, he reported to me. Stepping into the suite, I almost tripped across the legs of body number one, the groom. He was lying just inside the front door, crumbled in a heap in an open tuxedo shirt and pants. Blood matted the hair on his chest. I took a deep breath. May I present Mr. David Brent? Jacoby intoned with a crooked smile. Mrs. Brent, Mrs. David Brent's in there. He gestured toward the bedroom. Guess things went down here for them quicker than most. I knelt down and took a long, hard look at the dead groom. He was handsome, with short, dark, tussled hair and a soft jaw, with the wide, apoplect eyes locked open and the rivulet of dried blood on his chin marred the features. Behind him, his tuxedo jacket lay on the floor. <clears throat> Who found them, I asked, checking his pocket for a wallet. Assistant manager. They were supposed to fly to Bali this morning, the island, not the casino. Boxer. For these two assistant managers do wake-up calls? <clears throat> I opened the wallet. A New York driver's license with a groom's smiling face. Platinum cards, several hundred dollar bills. I got up and looked around the suite. It opened into a stylish museum of oriental art. Celadon dragons, chairs and couches decorated with imperial court scenes. The roses, of course. I was more the cozy bed and breakfast type. But if you too, but if you were into making a statement, this was about as substantial a statement as you can make. Let's meet the bride, Jacoby said. I followed through a set of open double doors into a master bedroom and stopped. The bride laid on her back on a large canopy bed. I'd been to a hundred summersides and I could radar in on the body as quick as anyone. But this, I wasn't prepared for. I sent a wave of compassion racing down my spine. The bride was still in her wedding dress. Chapter 6 You never see so many murder victims that it stops making you hurt, but this one was especially hard to look at. She was so young and beautiful, calm, tranquil, and undisturbed except for the three crimson flowers of blood spread on her white chest. She looked as if she were a sleeping princess awaiting her prince, but her prince was in the other room, his guts spilled all over the floor. What do you want for 3500 bucks a night? Jacoby shrugged. The whole fairy tale? It was it was taking everything I had just to keep my grip on what I had to do. I glared as if a single venomous look could shut Jacoby down. Jeez, boxer, what's going on? His face sagged. It was just a joke. 
Whatever it was, this childlike, remorseful expression brought me back. The bride was wearing a large diamond on her right hand and fancy earrings. Whatever the killer's motive, it wasn't Wabri. A tech from the medical examiner's office was about to begin his initial examination. Looks like three stab wounds, he said. She must have sewed a lot of heart. He got the groom with one. What flashed through my mind was that fully 90% of all homicides were about money or sex. This one didn't seem to be about money. When's the last time anyone saw them, I asked. A little after 10 last night. That's when the humongous reception I did downstairs. And not after that? I know this isn't exactly your terrain, Boxer, Jacoby said. He broke into a grin, but generally people don't see the bride and groom for a while after the party. I smiled thinly, stood up, looked back across the large, lavish suite. So surprised me, Jacoby. Who springs for a room like this? The groom's father is some Wall Street big shot from back east. He and his wife were down in the room on the 12th floor, and was told it was quite a shindig downstairs. Up here too. Look at all these goddamn roses. I went back over the groom and spotted what looked like a gift box of champagne on a marble console near the door. There was a spray of blood all over it. The assistant manager noticed it, Jacoby said. My guess is, whoever did this brought it in with him. They see anyone? Yeah, a lot of people in tuxes. It was a wedding, right? I read the champagne bottle label. Krug Close de Missignon, 1989. That tell you something, Jacoby asked? Only that the killer has good taste. I looked at the blood smear tuxedo jacket. There was a single slash on the side where the fatal knife would have gone through. I figured the killer must have stripped it off after he stabbed him. Jacoby shrugged. Why the hell would he do that? I muttered out loud. Don't know. We'll have to ask him. Charlie Clapper was eyeing me from the hallway to see if it was okay to get started. I, I nodded him in. Then I went back to the bride. I had a bad, bad feeling about this one. It's not about money then. Sex. I lifted the fancy tool lining of her skirt. The coldest, bitterest confirmation sliced through me. The bride's panties had been pulled down and were dangling off one foot. A fierce anger rose in my anger rose in my chest. I looked into the bride's eyes. Everything had been ahead of her. Every hope and dream. Now she was a slaughtered corpse. Defiled, possibly raped on her wedding day. As I stood there, blinking as I stared down at her face, I suddenly realized that I was crying. Warren, I said to Jacoby. I want you to speak with the groom's parents, I said, sucking in a breath. I want everyone who was on this floor last night interviewed. If they're checked out, I want them traced, in a list of all hotel staff on duty last night. I knew if I didn't get out now, I couldn't hold back the tide any longer. Now, Warren, please. Now. I avoided his eyes as I skirted past him out of the suite. What the hell's wrong with Boxer? Charlie Clapper asked. You know women. There, I heard Jacoby reply. They always cry at weddings. Alright, you guys. So that's going to be it. We're going to leave it off here on chapter 7 and we'll get back to it another time. But thank you guys for listening and I'll see you guys in the next one. Bye.